Hi, I'm Matthew Graham, and I'm listening to Culture Matters podcast with Chris Smith. Build your cultural competence. Listen to interesting stories. Learn about the cultural fails and how to avoid them. Get the global perspective here at Culture Matters on international business. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution. He makes you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Every episode, he interviews a prominent guest who will tell you his or her story and share international experiences, making you more cultural competent. And now, here's your host, Chris Smith. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. My name is Chris Smith and you're listening to another episode of the Culture Matters podcast. We are on episode number 134. Today's guest is Mathieu Gram or Matthew Graham, if you want. Mathieu injects through his Olympic level coaching a fusion of cutting edge science insights on physical, mental, nutritional, medical and neurologic key performance indicators into high-powered executives' daily work and life habits towards his or her personal physical and mental goals. This executive service is most effective and therefore solely for executives with an Olympic mindset, i.e. with the same psychological profile as the Olympic athletes. Mathieu is also part of the physiotherapist team supporting the Belgian Olympic team. Sounds like a lot, maybe, but the interview is really interesting. Let's get right to it. It's time for this week's guest at Culture Matters. Mathieu, good morning. Good morning, Chris. And I know it's a good morning because we're, I th- well, I think actually it's a, it's a bit of an assumption, but I think we're in the same time zone. Um, we are, we are. Yes. Recording, recording here is the, the, the 22nd of January and it is seven minutes past 11 in the morning. And um, uh, I know who you are because you're one of the few guests on this podcast who I've met personally. And uh, But the audience doesn't really know who you are. So do us a little favor and, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Where do you come from? Where are you right now at this moment, physically that is? And what would you consider your so-called cultural frame of reference? What is your cultural experience? Um, so uh, I'm born in Belgium. I am in Belgium at the moment, um, which is a coincidence because uh, the last year and in 2020, I won't be a lot in Belgium because what I'm doing mainly is I'm working with uh, Olympic athletes and, uh, well, let's say high-powered executives uh, to bring them to their maybe extreme goals, you could call them, the medals or the highest possible performance, uh, which brings me a lot abroad. Um I've studied at university here. I couldn't get enough, so I did two degrees, two master's <laughs> degrees uh, in physical education and in, uh, in physiotherapy. And then uh, I went on to live abroad in uh, Perth, Australia, uh, down to uh, Saudi Arabia. So culture-wise, um, my reference is the world, I think, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, since I've been an expat, it's like a virus that creeps on you and you never get rid of it. So uh-huh. the, it's, it's amazing. I would, I, would, uh, I would recommend everyone to, to have an expert face in their life because of the cultures. Yeah. Um, but it also has a downside that my hometown is changed a bit for me. So I'm not really home here 
Right. If what, you understand what I mean. Yeah. What, what What is your hometown in terms of? I mean, we're talking about Belgium. You it's, were born in. It's uh, Leuven, you could say. It's uh, next to Leuven, uh, London. Oh, okay. That's my London is really next to Leuven. Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, Perth and Saudi Arabia, and you couldn't get enough. I mean, are you like this wonder child? Because I, I mean. Um, I know you're not, you're, you're, you're a bit younger than I am. Um, and you're doing all the things you're doing right now. Are you this, like this wonder child that is like, has the ability to learn and do anything and turn anything into gold like that? I don't think I, I wouldn't call myself a wonder child at all. I, I think I just have a, I have a vision and I have discipline. And I think those two, mm-hmm. those two are, are a very good, uh, well, potion to yeah. to get where you want to go, and I've always I've always been like that. Even from from a kid, uh, my mother got crazy with me when I had something in my mind. I couldn't let it go until I got it. Right. Um, and preferably, I had to get it by my own means. I had that obsession about not wanting someone else to interfere with my project. <laughs> uh-huh. So, but it's it it has been like that since. Since childhood, and I've, I've never changed, and it's a bit what I recognize in my Olympic athletes, and what I recognize in those high, high-powered executives. They're all obsessively driven towards a goal, and I think more than any wonder or talent, or you know, how, how do we have to call it, mm-hmm. magic. Mm-hmm. I think you, we just need to know what we want, and we need to go for it, and be 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 ready to fail for it, and fail better the next time, and. Right. And, and go forth from there and grow and grow in that uh, exactly and grow and grow and never stop growing yeah i know you i mean uh, like i said in, in the in the introduction i know you personally i mean we've one of the few guests that i've actually met physically and we've seen we talked to it uh, to each other um for a few times you've been my physiotherapist i've had some yes. uh, like i mean if you do some sports you will end up eventually with some injuries which i had as well um, and then I, just to give an example here, really, uh, for me, a personal example, I was struggling with a foot that was hurting. Uh, I went to a, um, uh, uh, osteopath, I think, uh, twice even in Belgium and in Luxembourg. They do something and uh, it didn't get any better. I go to you, you look at it, you, you let make me stand up, bent through the knees, etc., and you say, okay, it's there. How do you do that? Um, I mean, <laughs> really, it's, it yeah. was like, it's, it's, like it's, it's, it's amazing. It's a good question. It's a good question. Um, in my, my opinion, the, in, in any job you do, you need, to, you need to be the best at what you do in the sense that you need to have the, the basics. And for me, the basics is the full anatomy and the, the biomechanics and all of that. Mm-hmm. That goes without saying that you have that perfectly mastered uh, within your intelligence or your, your cognitive capacity. Yeah. Um, but then for me, the, the biggest part comes in the empathic understanding of the patient or the athlete or the person you have in front of you. Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, how, how I work uh, maybe differs from some others is that I really listen to what you say. Um, and actually, you gave me the answer in your explanation of what you feel, when do you feel it? How do you feel it? How do you describe the feeling? How does it make you feel? And really go into the, should I say, subconscious mm-hmm. matters of what you're feeling about that body part, which is hurting you. Yeah. And by doing the, by doing the clinical test, which is purely theory, 
Yeah. And everyone can do them. You don't need to be a genius to do that. By by combining them to your story, your feeling, how how you look when you say that, your body language, I think that's that is what drives me to the right answer or mm-hmm. the right hypothesis. And then comes the most important part. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the most difficult part. It's to simplify what is complex. And mm-hmm. once we can simplify what is complex, you understand 100% what I'm saying. Yeah. Where does your pain come from? How did it got there? And how can we get rid of it? And once you understand it, it's 80% of the healing because mm-hmm. you will do the job to heal it. I, I, I never want to be the guy saying to you, you will need me to heal you. Right. I think that's the worst kind of advice you can give to a patient. Mm-hmm. So I always try to step back from the patient and give him the power. So empower the patient with the right knowledge, simplified so that everyone, no matter your background, can understand 100% what you're doing. And then very importantly, you need to feel that the explanation resonates with how you, what you think and what you feel. And as long as you say, like, mm, I still have a feeling like there is something else mm-hmm. and you cannot explain it, mm-hmm. that means that I'm wrong. That means that I'm not on the right path or mm-hmm. anyway, not maybe in the right direction, but not, not on the right path. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, that makes sense in a way. Um, I want to come back to this, to this subject and typically towards the work that you, that you're currently doing with, um, uh, with, well, uh, the, your, your company, um, which is the Graham Challenge. Uh, but I, I want to step one uh, circle, uh, circle a little bit back in terms of your experience going to Perth and Saudi Arabia. I know you're, you're, um, you're quite a young guy in terms of, well, compared to my age, at least. Um, you went to Perth and Saudi Arabia. Those are from a, for, from a Belgian perspective, those are two really different cultures. How did you end up there? Yes. What was your experience and, and how did you yes. adapt or if anything, or maybe you fled even? Yeah. <laughs> Very true. Um, uh, well, let's start at the beginning and it's Perth and maybe I should start even before I worked in, in Panama before, um, a very short time as, mm-hmm. as a young guy, I was 17, uh, well, turning 18. Uh-huh. Um, it's that obsession about getting something which is very difficult to get. That's, that's how I always worked <laughs> and how I always lived. Yeah. So as, a, as that young guy of 17, I'm, s- I'm still a young guy, but, um, I was 17 years old. I really wanted to do something all by myself and have a working experience in Spanish fully paid by my employer. That okay. was my goal. So I looked up 120 guest houses. I'm a surfer, by the way. So I w- went into surfing, of course. Uh-huh. And I wanted to do some surfing, but paid by an employer in a, in a tropical destination. So I, I, I started to look, uh, browse the internet and contact 120 guest houses with a very <laughs> limited resume, of course. Yeah. And I was describing that I wanted to do anything if I could surf. So I wanted to even, you know, clean the toilets if it needed, right. uh, which is very important. I think we should never be feeling too, too great or too good to do the small things that has to be done. Like the old blacks, they sweep the sheds after they are after they won the, the World Cup, they will still sweep their own sheds to, yeah. to, to leave it uh, clean behind them. I think that's a very important philosophy. 
But anyway, um, out of the 120 guest houses, you know, 60, 60 guest houses respond, and then it goes down to maybe 10 that are really interested, and that goes down to two who didn't need the driver license because I was too young. Mm-hmm. So I ended up in uh, Moro Negrito, a, a little island in uh, at the height of David, uh-huh. uh, where they only had boats because there was one guest house on the island and there were no roads, so that was perfect for me. <laughs> and from there on, the same philosophy went down when I started university uh, as uh, physical, physical education, so mm-hmm. training and coaching speciality. I knew when I was starting that I wanted to work with the highest level sports. That was my goal from the start. So oh, I, mean, I knew. And then, I and then you're 18. Maybe we should just get this out of the out of the way. How old yeah. are you, if I can ask? At this moment, uh, I'm from I'm from 88, so I'm 31 at the moment. First okay. of April, I'll be 32. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, okay. And then you're 18 or something, 18 or 19, and then you go back yeah. to university and you've got those goals set already. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've got the goals as I want to work at the highest level of sports, and I got them maybe even earlier where in my third um, secondary school. I started sports sciences. Uh, and I started sports sciences, which, and this detail is interesting for, uh, for uh, later, is uh, I started sports science because my grades were not that good and I felt I needed more I needed more physical activity to be cognitive um, performance. Mm-hmm. And as a matter of fact, I started my, my sports science, which is a, only a limited one hour a day more. Uh, more, so meaning one hour a day because you only have two hours in Belgium yeah. uh, a week. So only that little change made my grades go up by 30% in school wow. which was which was amazing and yeah. i felt i needed it. it was like a gut feeling and then of course i had the feeling i need to do something in sport because it makes me happy it gives me energy mm-hmm. and that's i think energy is maybe in something equal to happiness um so yeah at 18 i knew i wanted to have that uh full full baggage to be able to help the best become better mm-hmm. Often it's only 0.1% that we, it's the marginal gains we work at. But they're so interesting because they're they're so pressured to get there, uh, which brings along uh, a lot of um, psychological interesting theories and Mm -hmm. practices. Mm -hmm. So uh, said that, done that. So I did my four years uh, physical education. And as with everything, I needed to exceed every year. So I exceeded (laughs) my own grades every year as well. And I I don't think good grades are really important, but I do think they open doors. Mm -hmm. So they gave me the opportunity to start a new collateral a uh, contract or, or uh, a cooperation between two universities because I wanted to surf and I said to my university, I want to go somewhere where we can surf and I'll arrange everything. So I did the contract with Ile uh, de la Réunion, Reunion Islands, which mm-hmm. is, by the way, probably one of the most beautiful places I've been mm-hmm. and you should definitely go. It's really nice. Okay. Um, so I initiated a uh, first contact with the two universities and got to got them on the table to sign a bilateral contract. So the cooperation between the two universities is set now and every year students can go, uh, which is amazing, which is mm. what I wanted to do. I wanted, again, something that my university first told me, like, you know, if you want to be the difficult one and you don't want to go to Reykjavik, where we already have a contract, mm-hmm. you go along, but you will have to do the work. And of mm-hmm. course, if someone says that to me, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll double the amount of work. Uh-huh. So I got there and then 
after getting it, and that's maybe my my disease, <laughs> is the moment I got the contract with Reunion, yeah. I needed something new. So I, I was already working for Australia, and then we come to Perth. Right. So I, lob- I lobbied, I think, for two years almost to get into Perth uh, AFL, so Australian Football League, mm-hmm. and I got into the Perth uh, West Coast Eagles. Which as, is an as, amazing as a, as a coach or as a player or as a physiotherapist, right? Okay, yeah, yeah. So I got there through my university as a trainee, as an internship, and that got a, a bit out of hand. And I worked. I started, you know, really as a trainee, and they they were really hesitant of letting me do some work. But I, which is logic. I mean, I'm working with those million dollar players. Yeah. Um, so I would have the same, uh, same precaution of letting some young guy working on my athletes. Yeah. But anyway, uh, if you, if you show that you are what you're saying you are and you, you really do the best you can, mm-hmm. um, I got my way in and I started working there. And because of that word spread, of course, in, in at university as well with the good grades and, you know, you, uh, reunion Island and then set a new traineeship in Australia. Um, some contact, it, it always goes through networking, which yep. is also an interesting part of cultures. Um, the, a guy from Saudi Arabia contacted me to ask to, well, to offer me a first job actually. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, he, he offered me a job in, uh, in Jeddah mm-hmm. and, um, well, considering everything and talked with my girlfriend at the time, um, we decided to, to do something crazy and go to that forbidden country. To <laughs> where... Jeddah, my goodness. Yeah. Jeddah is on the West coast of Saudi Arabia, close to Mecca. Yeah. Yeah. Close to Mecca, Medina. So it's yeah. all the, the holy cities, uh, we were riding between, uh, next to the Red Sea, which is a beautiful place, uh-huh. um, but the the borders were still closed at the time. There, I think they opened two years ago or one year ago to tourism, mm-hmm. and at the time it was only pilgrims who would land, get into massive amount of buses, one straight road to Mecca or Medina, yeah. do their prayers, one straight road back, and off, and off they the went. Yeah, so um, it was very, it was one of the best experiences and also one of the worst experiences I've had, I think, uh, Saudi Arabia. Can, can, um, can I Because I've been there a couple of times. I've been to Dharan on, on the east side and Jeddah on the west side a couple of times. It's not for Westerns. I mean, at that time, it's not an easy place to to be. I mean, how did you survive? Or, I mean, I don't mean that in a bad way, but how did you mm-hmm. adapt? Yeah. Um, it's like I said, it's a, it's a very, it's a place full of contradictions and it's like you said, it's not for Western people. Um, I'm not saying, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm not really brought up Christian or any religion. So yeah. I'm pretty, you know, free of religion Secular, if I can say yeah. it respectively. Um, and I, I came there uh, with my wife because we we got married like two weeks before leaving because we didn't know we had to be married, okay. of course. <laughs> so she couldn't come with me if she wasn't my wife. Okay. Um, but that, that that was funny. But uh, so we got into the country, and of course you have a huge culture shock mm-hmm. uh, with the extreme way of you know everything is still a lot. Uh, driven by religion, the five yeah. prayer times, everything closes five times a day. Um, 
and in every sentence they would say Allah. Yeah. <laughs> in every sentence. Yeah. So um, how did I survive? I think by opening up, by being being open to to consider their beliefs. Mm -hmm. And a belief is a paradigm for me. It's not me. That doesn't mean a religious belief. I yeah. have beliefs as well, which are not religious. Right. Um, and by opening up to what they value and what they stand for, yeah, I think we we can go a long way with any culture. And I I, I learned to appreciate so much things in Saudi Arabia which I didn't before. Mm -hmm. Because you, you encounter people when you're open for them. I, I even got a, a family dinner with the Minister of, of Intelligence from, uh, from Jeddah uh -huh. just because he saw me on the streets and he saw a Western guy and he was friendly enough to, to, well, to offer me tea. And from, from tea came fish dinner on Friday, which is their Saturday yeah. uh, for us. Um, it, it was amazing, an amazing time and I had a lot of encounters like that because you're open to it hmm. um and of course you have frustrating times and you, do, you don't understand everything they're saying or they're why they do that mm -hmm. like to work with them to just give a brief example yeah i would i would have a, a player uh he hurt his knee so i was rehabilitating him in the club yeah and i would say um okay uh tomorrow we'll see each other at 2 2 yeah. p.m and he would say inshallah coach Inshallah. If God will, and I would yeah. say, yeah, if God, if God's willing, I will be there. And I would say, no, 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 Inshallah. Tomorrow you'll be here at 2 p.m. Like, <laughs> you, you commit to it and I'll be here as well. No, no, coach, Inshallah. Every time. And I, I was almost in the beginning, I would get frustrated. I would say, Saeed, why do you keep saying Inshallah? It's tomorrow 2 p.m. Don't, yeah. don't, don't put Allah into it. No, he's, he's, leave him out of it. It's just you yeah. and me. Yeah. It's just you and me. And for me, it was more like he's he's pushing his responsibility to God. Uh -huh. um, but then he, he said very seriously and genuinely, he really believed what he said. He said, but coach, if tomorrow a bus runs over me, I will not be here at 2 p.m. Hmm. I said, no, of course, that, that's true. But what can I say on that? And, you know, it's their, their way of, of being. Um, it's very interesting that they... They incorporate Allah in, in so many, so many ways of communicating and ways of being even. Yeah. Um, yeah. The superior being that has, has control over, over, over everything and them including. And them including. Yeah. And it, it, it's, it shapes their culture a lot. But there, for Saudi, there is a, a big difference between the Quran and then the, the actual practice of religion. In the sense, and that's not my words, that's the words of that Minister of Intelligence, yeah. who was in Jeddah 50 years ago, and he, he was telling me, look, look, 50 years ago, women were uh, riding on camels. They were not covered with uh, abayas or niqabs. Yeah. Um, he said, this all changed when the mutawa, the religious police, yeah. uh, had more power, and to exert that power, they would, they would well, slightly they would interpret the Quran slightly different and they would put rules which are not really mentioned in the Quran, mm -hmm. like women cannot drive, women cannot work, women need to be covered. All of those things are not what he interprets from the Quran. So it's very interesting to hear some 
native yeah. uh, Saudi, which has a lot of power and which has seen a lot of things, um, say those things because it puts everything into perspective. True. And if you see the the Mutawa running around, you've, you've probably saw them as well with their big beard and yeah. their uh, yeah, yeah. towel on they will always be accompanied with a police officer because the Mutawa has no jurisdiction or they have no um, legal power unless the police is next to them and the police will just endorse what he said. But if, if my wife wouldn't be covered and the Mutawa would see her, he would come to me and she would be next to me. He would come to me and said, tell your wife to cover herself. Yeah. He cannot address my wife because she's my wife and he has no, no right to address her. And she's only your uh, wife. Yeah. She's only my wife. Yeah. And if I would go and pick up the wife of a colleague of mine of the club yeah. and would be seen in the same car, it would be dramatic because she's not my wife. Yeah. You know, little rules like that, they're all really crazy and the, 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 that guy which, with who I had fish with, uh, with his family, he... He got mad about it because he said that's not what we want to be and what we want to look like as a culture. Right. But it's only it's only a certain group that wants to exercise power that that does it in that way and suppresses if you want uh, an, another group. Then. Yeah, that's that's how I felt it, and uh-huh. I'm not saying I'm a specialist in that, but that's how I felt uh, my period there. Yeah. yeah. How, how long did you stay there, Mathieu? It's a uh, one season, one year. I had a contract of two years. But I uh, shortened it after a year because I had a, an offer to come back to Belgium and start a company with uh, Professor Bellemans and uh, Martin Thijs, okay. my previous colleagues. Yeah. Well, it, okay. That, that was that was an interesting summary in terms of uh, cultural differences and how you, as a Western experience, uh, in this case Arab culture and Arab culture within Arab culture, also has has two sides. As you uh, as you displayed, coming back to Leuve is a good segue into coming um, to talking about what you do with the Olympic team and your high-powered executives. If if you're okay with doing that, um, yes. Sir. So, what is your what is your role? Because you are part of the Belgian Olympic team, correct? Of the games yeah. coming up in Japan, in Tokyo. Yes. Yeah. Uh, so what I'm doing now um, is. Uh, part of my time is uh, still fully committed to the Olympic athletes to get them to Tokyo and, of course, Paris and LA and what's coming behind LA. We still don't know. Ex- explain a little Olympic bit Paris, games. LA, Tokyo, what's going on there? What are so, the so it's all Olympic Games. So now we have 2020 in Paris, the Summer Olympic Games. Uh-huh. And the next one will be in Paris, 2024. And then 2028 will be in Los Angeles. Um so we prepare them for the Olympic Games, and to do so, those those athletes they give up everything. Uh, they sacrifice a lot to to reach the level mm-hmm. of an Olympic athlete. So just that is it's uh, almost an impossible impossible um, project. Yeah, and hence hence my interest, of course, <laughs> of uh, getting into that project. So. So those athletes, they are really performing on the edge on a physical basis yeah. every day. Yeah. And we, I really noticed um, that if we do not support them on a mental slash cognitive way, yeah. they will never be sustainably good at that level. That's a very important phrase, that sustainably. Because you can get gold, it's very hard, but you can get it. But to keep your gold, it's the hardest. Right. 
So get on the level is hard, but be on the level and stay there. It's the hardest possible yeah. job uh-huh. because Makes you have sense. much more pressure. Yeah. And it, I, I realized this two, two years ago almost when, when one of my, well, one of the best triathletes in Belgium, a woman, uh, Valerie, mm-hmm. she dove in Canada in Edmonton, uh, at, I think it was 6 to 5 p.m. in the afternoon. She she dove into the water with 52 other viciously competitive other women mm-hmm. to, to get into that first part of triathlon, which is not a swim, but it's a battlefield in the water. You just see whitewash, and it's, it's crazy. But Valerie is, is really one of the better swimmers in the field. So I was standing at the exit of the water to to encourage her to the trans, transition to a bike, and normally we expect her in top 10, 15 out of the water, being a good swimmer. Mm-hmm. But uh, I was counting 12, 14, 18, 20, 25, still no Valerie. I was getting worried. Uh, and at number 32, I, I saw someone getting out of the water with a silhouette looking like Valerie, but yeah. full drained of energy. She she had like that, those red eyes and you saw she was burned in the first step. Wow. So she she crawled on her bike and she did what she had to do as good as she could. Yeah. And then it was horrible to see her run because she she was suffering. And that night she she came to to the room to the physio room and we do a checkup every night. And the next day we had to do the mixed relay event. So the Friday where her dramatic event was an individual race, mm-hmm. and the next day is the mixed relay. And the mixed relay is two the two best male and two best female athletes compete in a relay event. So they they would start with first woman, then the man, then a woman, then a man. Okay. And the first team that comes in won. Um, it's a very, very uh, interesting format because it goes really fast. So it's uh, much more interesting to watch. Okay. Um, but anyway, the next day in Edmonton, we had to be fifth of the world to still be in, in role for uh, selections for Tokyo mm-hmm. as a team. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine the pressure on her because the rest of the team, the three other uh, athletes did a, a very good performance. So everyone was worried to see her, well, <laughs> giving that performance. Of course, and she was the most of all worried. So that night, I, I told her, uh, "Well, um, tomorrow will be the same shit." Excuse my French, but it will be the same shit. We we are not at the level we should be physically to do this. Right. But I have good news. We can we can change something in one night. We can change the mindset. We can we can make um, uh, we can make it a mental game. A mental shift. So. Yeah. Yeah, so I told her, what what for you could be a rock? I told her, and I'll ask you, what, how do you eat an elephant, Chris? Yeah, I, I think it's bit by bit uh, or, or piece by piece, <laughs> like a, a big salami. Exactly, like a big salami, I like the, the metaphor. Uh-huh. So like that elephant, I told her, that elephant will be the rock for you. So okay. you, every time you start to suffer, you will feel the pain in your body. You will feel it because we saw today what happened tomorrow is going to be the same. You will feel it. So we will prepare on that. The moment you start to feel the pain, you are distracted from your goal, which is finishing the swim, finishing the bike, finishing the run. So every time you feel it, think about that elephant. And I even showed her, I think, I I, I forgot, but I I think I even showed her like a pink elephant. So she really has it in her mind. (laughs) So she got into that rock uh, phenomenon of uh, holding on to the rock. 
And then I said, let's go one step further and let's go into the martial arts where you have Jackie Chan doing a five inch punch technique where, you know, he has his fingers against your uh, sternum, your, uh, your chest. Yeah. And he would in one punch push you like five meters away. Well, in his mind, he has a metaphor of an octopus arm, which is eight meters long, and he will go through your body, through the wall and through the next wall. That's working with metaphors. So I told her, if you're open to that, are you ready to imagine an animal to dive into the water tomorrow? Hmm. And she said, okay, I'll, I'll choose a swordfish, which is the fastest fish in the world. So I said, very good. Uh-huh. So cut it open, get into it, zip it, and imagine and be diving into the water, do the race in your mind, and then for the bike, let's choose another animal. Okay, a lioness, so, so she could hunt the next groups. And then for the, for the run, where she would have concrete legs, she chose a gazelle, very light. Mm-hmm. So again, she did the imagery, which is, by the way, scientifically proven to work. Yeah. And the next day, we ended fourth of the world. So we got into our role for the Tokyo Games. And as, as we speak today, we are all selected still for, for Tokyo. Uh-huh. And that little story was for me the start to, to make the jump to those executives. Because those executives, like the Olympic athletes, are on their edge. Uh-huh. But they're on their cognitive and mental edge every day. Yeah. And if they are not supported physically, they will never and I'm really sure about that, they will never sustain their level in a healthy way. Hmm. They will, hmm. a lot of them will sustain for a long time, yeah. but they will all pay it. Yeah. And it will be paid in mental or physical damage, yeah. if I can say it that way. And everyone knows that it's, you know, the, the big word of burnout and those things. I don't like those labels, but these are an Im- these are a symptom or a sign of an imbalance between the physical and the mental load. Mm-hmm. It's like an iceberg. Yeah. Your physical load with most of it in the executives is the tip of the iceberg. And the thing on the water, that's the mental load. Everyone is loading mentally while sitting. Um, and so there is no um, counteraction of the physical load. And what I'm doing now with my team, uh, with Graham, is we're getting a very select uh, ex, um, executive profile. And I always tell my executives, I want you to have a profile if you want to work with us, which matches the Olympic profile. Right. And that means that you need to be very committed to what you do. And if you step into the program, I'll commit fully. So you have your, your, your uh, results. And the only thing I do is grounded in science and crafted by Olympic expertise. So it's not, I'm not reinventing any wheels here. Uh It's just applying science with the right mindset and you'll get your results. It's like you applied what I just asked you to do for your foot and you get your results. That's me. It's not magic. It's just you doing a job and science applied. Yeah. It's very easy. Yeah, it's mechanics, and but you you're the one that indicates okay, do this and this and this. But I have to do it, and and then this executive has to do it as well. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's how I got to uh, what I'm doing now. And uh, as we're speaking, uh, the, the program is well fully booked uh, after the first year because it's still a startup, of course. Um, and we have a first uh, executive in the state, so we will uh, have a look end of March and see the traction in uh, San Diego, what we can do there, and if we can be of a bigger impact. And 
that's what I wanted to come at because that's interesting uh, in this uh, podcast. Yeah. My my real um, reason to start this company, of course, it's the, the the urge of performing with the best performance and making them better. But when I started uh, after Saudi Arabia, I came back to start to work with Olympic athletes only. And my mother asked me, what's your social relevance of this job? Yeah. And my brother is a, is a um, agricultural engineer in Uganda since five years now. And it's very, very clear what his social relevance is. He, he helps the farmers, well, know their land better and uh, work more efficiently. Mm-hmm. And I was slightly offended. It was not a good talk <laughs> with my mother when she asked me that. I was offended because I felt like the only thing I could say is, say is I, I make the best better by 0.1%. Yeah. And they are role models. So you, I was, you know, I was trying to argument my way out of it, but I felt that she had a point. And what I felt when I started Graham is what I really want to do is I want to influence the, the decision makers, mm-hmm. the people on top who have the power to initiate big changes. Mm-hmm. I want to influence them by the philosophy I have about what I had in third secondary school already, the feeling that what I see with those executives and with my athletes is that when we support a mental performance with a physical one, we will be much more sustainable mm-hmm. and we will reach even higher levels if we're not at the highest level already. Mm-hmm. And if, if we can do that, if I can do that with 12 executives in one year, Maybe those 12 executives have an average of 1,000 employees. That's 12,000 people I I could have a direct impact on by influencing those 12 decision makers, which could, they could say, Jesus, this really works. I feel much more productive. I feel happier because I am productive. When I come home, I'm not so restless. So my wife is happier. I have a better relationship. All of those things I'm saying now are the things my executives tell me. If they have that feeling, if they they want their company to be better performance, they they need to do the same philosophy or apply the same philosophy to their employees and create flexibility for the employees to do the sports before, during the, the work in function of the work. So we will always give you a very specific uh, physical task in function of a very specific cognitive task. If you have a meeting where you do need to do a negotiation, you will have another physical task before than when you do just a concentration task where you need to concentrate on a, on a, on a document. So the, the physical performance depends on the mental performance. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I want them to integrate that in their company and thereby I hope to have a much bigger impact in a social way and even an economical way. Hmm. Is there, you, you just mentioned that you have a, the, your first client in the US. Do you think, because I always come from the perspective uh, or the standpoint that really nothing is culturally neutral. So in other words, your approach to what you just explained is, um, should also not be culturally neutral. That is my assumption. So my question is, do you deal differently with, um, with um, executives from different countries? Do they have different needs, different ways of approaching them? Absolutely. I have I have one guy from the European Council. He's a French Italian guy. He, he will be approached differently than than uh, 
one of my executives uh, a, a woman or even the, 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 the man it's 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 intercultural but it's even interpersonal hmm. the thing is very very personal even with, with you Chris I will I will even if I don't want to my unconscious uh, behavior will steer me to talk differently to you than to than to the next because I will slightly adapt to what you give me as as a feeling, as your energy, as input, that you're, yeah, yeah, that you're putting on me, I I will probably have a slightly different way of approaching you. And when we are talking one on one, will be different. And when the third person is there, and you'll be different as well, even if we don't want to be. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, okay, that makes so. It's not even. I mean, it's culturally different, but it's also personally different because the individual is different. Exactly, yeah. and of course, what I'm doing here is now very it's shaped by my experiences from, from birth and, and so forth, mm-hmm. but it will be, I have, I'll have to change it slightly when I go to the States. I even see it now when we're, we are preparing the branding and we, we will make it slightly more American, but yeah. I will very much. So, um, keep the European label on it. For me, it's a, it's an important fact. I want them to know and to feel that we're not American. And that that's an interesting um, perspective to to work towards it because a lot of people would say, yeah, but in the States they love this and they love that. But I, even if they do love that, maybe it's good for them to see some a different culture approach. Yeah. yeah. And that's that could make your difference with your competitors as well. Yeah. That well, that, that's a that's a bit of a marketing. Um, I mean, that is a marketing approach, but also, I mean, it could also be a real realistic approach in terms of indeed. I mean, growing in terms of of knowing uh, something more that you haven't seen. I mean, decreasing your blind spots to, to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. I was wondering, um, uh, Mathieu. I mean, aren't you getting bored with the work you're currently doing? I mean, so the the question base the question behind the question is, what do you want to do when you grow up? Really. <laughs> Very good question. I, when I grow up, I want to grow. I think that's the best answer. Okay. I will never be bored as long as I can grow. Um, and as I feel that I, I, I get more energy than I put into it. Uh-huh. That, that for me is maybe the most important factor of being happy with the job and with the life I'm leading. Yeah. It's, it's that energy factor. Um, and like I said, for me, the energy is equal to happiness. If I feel really energized because I have helped you, um, even if it's if it's you, Chris, when I f- when I feel that I am spot on and I I could ha- I um, had a good impact on what you can do, and after you send me a text like this is amazing, it it worked mm-hmm. for me. That's that's the best energy and that's the best pay <laughs> if you can say yeah, that yeah, way. Yeah, so, yeah. am I not bored? Until now, not at all. I'm 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 full of energy. I'm sometimes even trembling, (laughs) full of energy. I cannot stop it. It sounds like it. uh, Yeah, yeah. It's it's amazing. It's really nice um, because I feel I I am on something that is that is could be important and that can have a big impact that goes beyond myself. And Uh that's a very important point. I think it's. I'm, I'm doing something. I have a feeling I'm doing something that can help a lot of people. And that gives me a lot of energy. So as long as I can do that, I'll, I'll stay in this job. 
Okay. All right. It, it sounds sounds all all good to me and interesting as well. And typically also to the extent that how you are as where you are right now in your uh, in this case your professional development here, uh, that being colored by your experience in uh, in Panama, in Perth, and Saudi Arabia, how that actually how that that worldly experience has led to um, well to to Graham challenge and 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 your your personal challenge here um, at this very this much. Time. Yeah. I'm looking at the time here. We're about 42 minutes. It's one of the long longest podcast I've ever recorded I think um, but really. I mean I'm I, I'm I'm interested in what you do because I'll because I know and, and I I love the um, the idea and the and the uh, the goal orientation that you that you portray that you sort of ooze out of every pore that you have um, but nonetheless keeping the audience in mind as well it's uh, I want to um, segue into the last two questions that I have for you one is um, one I prep you for in terms of for from your experience how can how can one how can you become how can we become more culturally competent? Can you give us three tips, please? Um, for me, first tip would really be that open mind. Mm-hmm. Um, so open mind to any culture and any perspective. And a second tip goes from that one on, and that means the the the, the reasoning I can learn from anyone. So that goes further than just an open mind. That's really listening as you can learn from it. And I, I learned from the, the, the two uh, Bangladesh guys who came and cleaned my house as an expat in Saudi Arabia. They were always cleaning my house with a big smile. And at the time, my wife was deported. Uh, after three months, she was deported because my ikama, my residence uh, license, was um, was not okay anymore. And the uh-huh. club didn't do what they had to do. So long story short, my wife got deported to Belgium, to rich Belgium. She was here with her parents, <laughs> having everything she needed. But by those two guys, uh, every day they came in, cleaned my whole house. I even did my dishes myself because I felt guilty that they would do it. <laughs> so they... They were always so happy to do it. And in the beginning, I was it was a slap in my face because I was whining about the fact that my wife was in Belgium and I was there and we couldn't see each other and blah, blah. Mm-hmm. But those guys, they, they, they learned me maybe the most important lesson of life. And that's I, I really started to appreciate what really matters. Those guys, they, they showed me their kids uh, in Bangladesh jumping on uh, like a, f- a bed frame uh, in one room house where everything happens, mm-hmm. sleeping, eating, everything. Yeah. And every two years they would go home to get to their family and then they would come back two years to work for almost nothing. But they were positive. They were, they were happy to clean with a European um, guy who was respectful for them. So... That that that's maybe into the third tip, and that is uh, mutual respect. Uh, if you're open-minded, you have the mindset of I can learn from anyone, the cleaning lady to the biggest CEO, and I have respect for everyone's opinion, or I dis I agree to disagree. I think you go a long way culture-wise. Yeah. I'm writing these, these things down. You have an open mind. Um, you can learn from anyone and and um, uh, appreciate the mutual respect or have mutual respect. Yeah, have have mutual respect for for any opinion, even if it's far from your opinion. Yeah. Still have mutual respect and ask yourself that question about why is he or she right? Yeah. 
Good point. Just if, asking that question, it's very interesting. You'll get to some big answers you didn't see before. Yeah. And then you have to keep your mind open, of course, in terms of, in, in of, terms of hearing yeah. and wanting to hear the answer as well. Um, Mathieu, if people, if inspired people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Uh, they can get to the website, uh, get in touch there. Uh, the website is uh, gramchallenge.com or they can just email me on Mathieu at gramchallenge.com. It's the easiest. And Mathieu is spelled M-A-T-H-I-E-U. At Correct. The Correct. French way of writing. Yeah. Yes. So one T. Yes. All right. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much for, for uh, taking the time out of your, um, your I guess, busy schedule. And um, uh, I'm pretty sure we'll bump into each other almost yes, literally very, very in, uh, in, in the future. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure. Very welcome, Chris. It's uh, been uh, very nice to talk to you again and uh, to be on this podcast. I'm happy. Okay. Have a great day. Okay, you too. Bye-bye. Bye. If you haven't subscribed to this podcast, please do so. You can do so in Spotify and iTunes and Stitcher as well. While you're there, if you can, please leave a review as well. That would uh, really be helpful. All right. The music in the background is from Ben Sound. You can check it out at bensound.com. My name is Chris Smith. This was the Culture Matters Podcast. And guess what? I'll be back in two weeks' time. You take care. Bye. That's it for this episode. Culture Matters, making you understand cultural diversity better by interviewing real people with real experiences. Your host, Chris Smith, has a plan. A plan for people who are looking for a solution.